And, you know, today we're wrapping up our message series, and we've been taking a look at what they, um, you know, we've been taking a look at what Hollywood has to say about relationships. And this series is really all about trying to basically overcome the things that can kill and destroy our relationships. And so, you know, Hollywood is really good, huh? They're really good at making values look good. And, um, and I personally really enjoy movies. I really love film. I really love TV. Matter of fact, I think I like it too much, you know? Um, I have all kinds of different content data streaming into my house, and um, I can kill an entire day watching TV and movies if I really want to. And I can stay up late at night. And um, But, you know, it's okay as long as I'm um, immunizing myself from the values and perspectives. And the way I do that is I like to identify them. Matter of fact, this can kind of drive my family crazy a little bit. You know, as I'm like talking to the screen and partially, you know, rightly so for them, criticizing, you know, I'm criticizing the content or not the content, but the quality of the product being presented to me. So I'm always like, ah, man, that's horrible acting. That's terrible writing or what's up with the lighting there? You know, no, I don't get that. serious. But, you know, I'm just like, oh, give me a break. This is ridiculous, you know, but I still enjoy it. And they just want to have fun. They're like, dad, can we just enjoy the movie? And, but it's good that I pick it apart. It's good that they learn to pick it apart. Because Hollywood is really presenting us some, some things that aren't necessarily biblical. And if we don't at least identify it and say, hey, that's not right, it can tend to sink in, right? Um, you can kind of track society's worldviews from watching film and television. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who was an author in the 70s and 80s, a Christian author, he wrote a book called How Then Shall We Live? I'm actually reading it right now. I'm not all the way through it, so bear with me if you've read it and finished it. But in this book, he's kind of setting up the... um, He's trying to show how art can reflect a society or a culture's worldview. And he starts from like the um, Renaissance era and moves forward into what was modern, uh, which was in the late 70s at that point. And um, it's a really interesting book. It's a little tedious and boring because there's dates and all that stuff thrown in there. We tried to listen to it on a family road trip once with our kids. And they're older. Our kids are older. But everybody was like, "Uh uh-uh, you know, (laughs) let's get back to a story. And rightly so, you know. So, but... One of the things he says in there, and it was surprising to me, he says that art used to be far more integrated into our daily life. Like the common man experienced and expressed and was around art. It was just far more integrated in society. And I don't even know what that looks like, honestly. But now it's pretty separated out of our culture. You know, we go to museums. It's something that only certain people really are in. You know, we may enjoy it, but it's not part of everyday life. And I agree with You know, Francis Schaeffer mostly. However, the part that I disagree with is I believe that today's integrated American art form is film and TV. And that is our, that is the American art, is film and TV. And it's integrated in everyday life. And you can really track our society's values and perspectives by looking at movies and TV. And so... That's why it's important for us as a church to occasionally do this. Where we look at movies, we say, what are they saying? And then we say, what is the Bible saying? 
So now we're using these as kind of a launching pad. I'm not going to go like scene by scene. and We're not going to go theme by theme in all the movies and really pick and pull out everything. But we're going to use it as a launching pad to talk about something important regarding relationships. And today we're really wrapping up this whole series. And we're going to look at the Bourne franchise. Anybody Jason Bourne fans? You know, yeah. So, you know... um, and the movie comes out on 729, so it's not out yet. You can't go see it this afternoon, and I haven't seen it yet. I didn't get a pre-screening. Hollywood didn't let me. Can't believe that, you know. Um, but we're really just looking at the overall franchise and kind of what, what the theme is. And the theme really is unfaithfulness. It's just unfaithfulness in each movie. And we'll, we'll pick that apart here in a minute. But I personally really like these movies. And you know why? Because Bourne is the shorter man's hero, right? <laughs> You know, he's not too tall. <laughs> um, but he gets stuff done, right? <laughs> you know, and I mean, the idea of just a well-trained man who is capable of really almost anything is highly appealing to me. It's highly appealing to the man inside of us, right? I mean, uh, I think we like being competent. And so that's that's a big appealing thing. So here's the story that this sets up. is The CIA has, you know, really owes Jason Bourne they it really, it, it, you know, they really owe taking care of him because he's given up his life and volunteered for this special ops group, and he has devoted his entire life to that. And when they're done with him, they just toss him aside and try to make him disappear. And that's how the story starts, right? In the first Born movie, wipe his memories, leave him on, trying to actually leave him for dead, but he survives. And so, um, and in the story that's unfold, all the chaos and everything that's happening. There's all kinds of countless murders that take place for people trying to cover up Jason Bourne and make him disappear. And one of the murders ends up being his girlfriend. And he turns into an avenger at that point. He's going to avenge his death and he is going to get back and survive and overcome this unfaithfulness towards him. And so, you know, and that's what unfaithfulness does. It just wrecks and destroys Everything and everyone involved. And so each movie has lie after lie after lie, and everybody is attempting just to cover their own backs, right? And the whole point is just to survive. Um, and it's really about how to survive in a world where no one can really be trusted. So let's watch a preview, and let's look at the strength and skill that Jason Bourne has. And this is a preview for the upcoming movie, and it's fun, it's exciting, and then we'll kind of look at his world. So go ahead and roll that. Preview. I remember. I remember everything. Remembering everything doesn't mean you know everything. Tell me. We've just been hacked. Could be worse than Snowden. Facial recognition got a hit. Such so Jason Bourne. Why would it come back now? There's a demonstration in front of the Greek Parliament building. I think she'll use it as cover. They tracked you. We gotta move. He's seen things. He knows things. What if he's not coming for us? What if it's something else? 
comes here because of a lie. This is Jason Bourne. I need to talk. 32 kills. People are safer because of what you did. never going to find any peace. Not until you admit to yourself who you really are. All right. How many of you want to take a hit like that? Like, <laughs> or give a hit like that? I don't want to take it. But, oh, I love that scene, man. I watched this over and over and over again, and I actually just kept watching that scene. Like, just that, that punch. That's a great... It's probably the best punch in all of movie history right there. Um, and we'll see how it really It's totally impossible, too, and unrealistic. But it's great. Action-packed, huh? Suspenseful, thrilling. Don't you wish you could walk around with that? Dong, 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 dong. Everything you do, you're like mowing the grass. Dong, 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 dong. You know? Last night when we were finished, yesterday when we were finishing up our hike, one of the guys on our hike, um, Justin was playing as we were coming to the trailhead. He starts playing the final countdown on his phone, you know. You know, we're just coming down the trail and it was awesome. (laughs) So, theme music's great. Um, And this is a great, it's a fun movie, but boy, it's not very good if you're looking for advice on how to be a good friend. You know, here's his world. Here's Jason Borden's world. Only the strong survive. It's stressful. There's a lot of loss and pain. There's fighting, you know, hopeless. It's full of wreckage, and nothing never ends, and it's never restored. And there's a problem with that. And I want to I invite you to take out your listening guide and follow along. And the problem that this movie presents to us is this. What should our response be when trust is broken in a relationship? What should our response be when trust is broken in a relationship? You know, we actually have a duty in relationships to love, to consider, to play a role, and to work hard. You know, we all, overall, all relationships are built on trust, okay? And it doesn't matter if it's like the relationship between you and your cashier at Burger King or whatever, you know? Anybody go to Burger King? (laughs) Um, Sorry if you like Burger King. And, um, you know, or if it's your spouse. A little more difficult if it's your spouse, but... You know, I mean, I when I walk into Burger King, I trust that they're going to take my order, be polite, and give it to me, and they trust that I'm going to pay for it. You know, there's a there's a mutual trust there. Uh, matter of fact, you know, so so here's some factors of trust, and then we'll talk about this. So there's three major factors of trust that we all expect this from each other. It's interesting. It's are people competent? So the people in a relationship are they competent? Do they have the strength, resources, and ability to do what they say? Do they have integrity? Basically, will they follow through and keep their promises? And are they gen- do they have a genuine concern for us? Do they actually care about my welfare? Isn't it interesting? Just pause for a moment and think about it. Like, we really need that from people, right? You know, um, and C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, a book he wrote, talks about he, how, how this desire for this for this mutual trust. I'm kind of summarizing his words a little bit here and extrapolating them, but he talks about how this is a common thing for mankind. 
It is a common need in relationships for mankind. Matter of fact, there's in grad school, I watched these, there's a video that seemed like every professor was just so excited to show for some reason. But it was a psychological study done on a one-year-old and its mother. And it's painful to watch. And I had to watch it like ten times. But anyways, there's this little baby, and it shows this kind of this need for genuine concern. It's this little baby and its mother. And the mother's like playing with the baby in the high chair and the baby's like, you know, they have their little routine where they do their little, hi baby, you know, all that stuff. And the baby's laughing and responding and the mom's responding. The baby points and the mom looks and, you know, and then the, they laugh and, you know, there's this mutual relationship going on and they're enjoying each other. Then the mom goes away and then she comes back and for two whole minutes, she just is there in front of the baby with a still face, no response, no words, nothing, just a blank face. And the baby, you know, sees, oh, mommy's here, you know, hey. Initiates, you know, whatever. They can't really, there's not much words at that point, but they initiate interaction with mom. Mom doesn't respond. Baby, you can see the baby's like, oh, something's wrong here, you know. So then the baby like, ah, I'll point. That's a good trick. Mom used to always look over there and we laughed about that, you know. I'll point. And mom doesn't do anything. And then the baby gets more frustrated and more frustrated. And eventually by the end of two minutes, the baby's completely melting down. It's horrible. Just sheer, sheer distress. And what we learn from that is that even from our infancy, we need responsiveness and concern and consideration and faithfulness from relationships. It's something that's built inside of us. So we all tend to identify with born, right? We've been, people have been unfaithful to us. But we also need to identify with the CIA in this story. CIA are the defrauders. We've been defrauded, but we've also defrauded people. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 6, it says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. All these relationship killers that we've been going over in the last weeks have really been discussing this. And really, they are the expression of unfaithfulness. These different relationship killers we've been talking about. So, you know, we defraud relationships when we choose the attributes we have been looking at in this series. And these attributes basically are pride, you know, lying. We looked at lying and secrecy. We looked at poor communication. We looked at manipulation. And we looked at selfishness. And if you haven't listened to these, if you haven't been present for these sermons, I would really highly encourage you to go listen to them on our website. You can find them there and listen to them because they really give real-world, practical, and biblical examples of how to avoid these relationship killers and what to do. Very helpful stuff. Very, very helpful stuff. Um, and it's worth it. So, But we can also violate trust in other ways. It's not just in the areas, you know. Um, and there's three main components to how we violate trust with each other. It's being inconsiderate. You know, um, that's fairly self-explanatory. Not keeping your word. And then making poor decisions. It's really hard to get behind someone who's always making poor decisions, right? You, you, you lose trust with them. And I've done these things. I've been defrauded and I've defrauded many, many times, unfortunately. And, you know, in preparing for this sermon... And looking at the scripture and what it has to say, God has really opened my eyes to my lack of love and faithfulness in my relationships. And so um, I, need to, I need to change. Um, thankfully for this problem, though, there is a solution. And here is, and well, here's the deal. Um, 
The solution is basically, you know, think there's a solution for both ends of the perspective, of the spectrum. Whether you've been defrauded or you've defrauded people. And, you know, like I said, I do encourage you to go listen to those messages if you haven't. But doing relationships God's way is really vital for our enjoyment on this earth. And I want to, before we get into the solution, I really want to pause and talk about this for a minute. Our relationships, essentially, this is something I've become aware of in the last five years. And maybe you figured this out when you were like a little kid, but it's taken me a while. But our whole experience on this earth is really viewed and lived and experienced through the lens of our relationships. You know, I, I, one of my jobs is I'm a grief counselor. And the reason I have a job is because when someone very close to people die, their whole world falls apart. You know, they still have all the same possessions. They still have the house. They still have, like, the city they live in. They still have, like, whatever. But they don't have that person. And their whole world falls apart. And so what it shows me is that people, relationships are incredibly important. And our whole experience on this earth is, is through that lens. And so the reason I point that out is to highlight how important it is to take relations seriously. You know, God is trying to help us here. He's trying to give us um, enjoyment and blessing through telling us how to do relationships. Um, But it's hard work and it's difficult. But here's the solution. The solution is God provides restoration. And that's it. There's the sermon. Just kidding. Wouldn't it be easy if that's all I could say? Um... God provides restoration. The solution is really found in biblical restoration of these relationships. Um, But before I parse out the different components of biblical restoration, I first just want to mention that this is not a comprehensive message on restoring relationships. Um, You know, I started with this bunch of information. I've been working it down. And it's been difficult, honestly, to work it down to a, you know, 30-minute speech on biblical restoration. I really struggle with this. And so what we're going to attempt to do today, guys, is we're going to attempt to skim the surface of the water of biblical restorations. We're going to try to provide a, um, an outline for how to approach this. But ultimately, what I want you to do is I want, I want you to go to God. I'm trying to, you know, tell you God can help. He can provide restoration. You know, and I also just want to highlight that some of the amount, the amount of defrauding that some of you have experienced or committed has been pretty intense. Some of you have, have been hurt for years by people, and the amount of hurt has gone deep. And it, it may take just as long or longer to recover those relationships as it did to get them where they are today. So you need to be patient and need to be committed to the process in order for this to work. But I just want you to know that I hurt for you if you're in that position. I validate those feelings. I'm not here to give you a simple, easy, like, from-the-hip solution. Like, you know, take these two verses and call me in the morning and your relationships will be fixed. Because life's more important than that, you know? Like, it's not that easy sometimes. And you may need help. But ultimately, God can help you. He's able to do it. So, here's a few themes I want to set the tone. 
before we we're gonna we're basically we're gonna talk about what you've what to do if you've defrauded someone and then what to do if you've been defrauded. But there's a few components or themes that kind of you know their attitudes to put on mental approaches to take towards those before we talk about them. And we're going to be looking at a bunch of scripture today. I've narrowed it down, you know, because I think we had like 75 slides at one point. So we've gotten it down a little bit, you know, because I know people got to eat lunch and whatnot. And um, so, but I want to use scripture because scripture speaks so clearly and accurately to to the themes of life sometimes, far more than I can. I mean, we need to extrapolate, we need to teach, we need to explain scripture, and that's a good thing to do from the pulpit. But sometimes we just need to read scripture. It's healing. There's power in it. You know, that's why I was listening to the um, memorial service for the um, Dallas police officers, and, you know, there was presidents and all these people there speaking, and it seemed like a lot of them pulled scripture out. I don't know what their personal lives are. I don't know how serious they are about God in their personal lives. But I know this, that they believe and they know that the word of God has something important to say in times of trouble. And, you know, this is part of the reason why the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, despite the lack of people who actually believe in the Bible. It's still the best-selling book of all time. There is power in Scripture. And so my hope today, my hope is to give you some insight on how to approach relationships and how to approach restoration. But my number one goal, if I had any goal for this sermon today, is this. Is that I would draw, that that you'd be drawn to God's Word as a real source for real-world problems. And that you could see that Scripture really is sufficient. And that you would say, you know what? I want to investigate this. I want to look to Scripture more for how I live my life. So here's those kind of key components or these key um, attitudes I was talking about. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 tells us this. Um, If if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are, are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's basically saying this. Scripture, God, his ways are good and worth it. And he can take care of us. He can be faithful to us whether it's in this life or the next. And we'll talk about that verse as we get further on. The next thing I want to bring your attention to is Colossians 3, 12-13 really gives us an idea of the attitudes that we need to put on. You know how we put on clothes in the morning? Thankfully. Um, we need to put on attitudes each day too. And here's some of the attitudes that we need to put on with God's help. Therefore, as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with, that's important, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Matthew, 20, Matthew 5, 23-24 highlights the importance of clearing up relationships, and many of you have, have been exposed to this first. But So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and, remember, and there remember that your brother has something against you, first leave your gift there at the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother. 
Clearing up relationships, according to this verse, really seems to be of a higher importance to God than his than worshiping God. So, here's what I want you to keep in mind as I go through these the different aspects of clearing up relationships. Is I want you to keep in mind, one, clearing up relationships is very important to God. Two, clothe yourself with certain attitudes and attributes. We talked about them. And then three, just understand that God's ways are good. And then he'll take care of us. So, what do you do when we've defrauded other people? And again, remember, we're skimming the surface here. With God's help, you can seek forgiveness to those you have defrauded. You know, seeking forgiveness is pretty difficult, okay? So there's two main things I want you to think about in seeking forgiveness. The first one is I want you to, you need to take responsibility, And this is not shifting the blame. This is where you choose humility. And humility is really just making yourself lower and then actually saying, this is what I did. It doesn't say, I did this, but, and you did that. It's saying, this is what I did. And humbling yourself to not talk about what they did, which is really hard. It's really hard. Matter of fact, when I've had to do this, I find myself literally pushing down my need for justice. Pushing it down. And trusting God to take care of that part. And then second, once you take a responsibility, you ask for forgiveness. You know, but here's the thing about forgiveness is don't expect forgiveness to just repair the damage that's incurred over time. Trust must be destroyed. I think good people can argue about this, but there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. They're 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 different. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little more. But they're, they're different. So understand that. Now next is, with God's help, we can become a person committed to love and faithfulness in relationships. So in a nutshell, here's the deal, and this is important. In a nutshell, we need new patterns of love and faithfulness that derive... And we're going to look at what love and faithfulness are. Don't worry. We're going to kind of look at what love and faithfulness. But we need a new pattern of love and faithfulness that derive from a commitment to doing relationships God's way. A mentor of mine once said this. He said, look, he said, and I think good people can also disagree on this, but he, he said, I don't think people grow to commitment. They grow from commitment. And a good example of that is, let's say you want to get fit. You want to get in shape, you know. You don't just buy a gym membership and say, or you buy all these exercise equipment and say, well, when I feel like it, I'll work out, and then I'll be fit. Because you won't. It's when you decide, I am going to go to the gym three days a week, or whatever it is, I'm going to join this class, do this, and no matter, come rain, shine, hail, snow, sleet, whatever. I am going to do that. I am committed to doing that, and then out of that comes growth, right? And so, we need a commitment to love and faithfulness in relationships. I'm, in another job I have, I'm seeing a couple from marriage counseling, and they're in their 60s, they've been married for 30-some years, and lately, it's funny, because just Friday, we were talking about this in our session, that we finally kind of identified the problem with it. They're, they, their marriage is full of a lot of um, dysfunction and a lot of pain, and neither of them are willing to be loving and faithful right now, but it's because... Neither of them are committed to it. And there's reasons for that, and it makes sense. And so, but that for me, as far as like having to help them walk through this, that's what I need to know. There's a lack of commitment 
to the restoration of this relationship? And can they become committed is now the answer if they're going to survive. Can they become committed to love and faithfulness? So let's look. Does that make sense to you guys, the commitment? All right, seeing some heads nodding, maybe. Okay. Um, let's let's kind of look at the flavor of what love, what I mean by love, because I don't mean necessarily romantic love. I mean, even though that applies in areas, I don't mean that, though. Let's look at the flavor, and let's look at some passages for that. First John three sixteen and 18 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love in word and deed, excuse me, let us not love in word and talk, but indeed in truth. There's a book called Love Does that kind of pulls this out. Um, Colossians 3 verse 12 says this, Put on then, there we go, putting on things again, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law, and then everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things. We learn from these passages that love can be defined and identified by following these attributes. And here they kind of just, I'm going to summarize those verses really quick for you like a scattershot. We got compassion, kindness, humbleness, meek, patient, doesn't boast, self-controlled, peacekeeping, does not give into the desires of the flesh for themselves, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, truthful, bears with one another, avoids irritability and resentfulness, is gentle and does not provoke. It thinks of others first. We have hard attitudes at our church, and one of the hard attitudes is to put the goals and interests of others above my own. That is an expression, that is a heart action of love. Putting the goals and interests of others above my own. Faithfulness is also seen in that too. And faithfulness is our next one. And I don't necessarily want to parse out what faithfulness is, It's essentially this, and you can look into it on your own, but it's essentially a steadiness. You can depend upon somebody. They are going to do what they say. They are faithful. But here's the prerequisite. Let's talk about a prerequisite for faithful, because we can identify faithfulness all day, but if these prerequisites aren't in place, then it's not going to do you much good. You know, I had a friend of mine once tell me, he's like, Scott... We can talk about what you need to do all day, but why don't we talk about why you're not going to do it? And the why I'm not going to do it is, a, is the prerequisite, you know. What, what, what needs to happen first before I can actually apply? So here's kind of what has to happen first. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Not a pleasant word. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the idea we get here 
is that we don't live for ourselves when we decide to follow Jesus. Jesus came. He came and he showed us the ultimate love through his death and resurrection and the ultimate faithfulness. And he is faithful, trust me. We are not faithful, but he is faithful. And he came so that we can then be a kind of a catalyst for that love and faithfulness to others. So when we experience his love and faithfulness, we can respond to others with that. The reality is, is that when we decide to commit our lives to God and decide to serve him and not our own desires, we are really freed up to be loving and faithful. Freed up. So commitment to these requires a certain perspective of I am here to serve God and I'm here to serve others. And the question is, well, who's going to take care of me? And that's the crux of that, isn't it? And we'll talk a little bit about that as we move on. So, so next, you know, what do you do if you've been defrauded? You know, what do you do if you've been defrauded? And this is hard. Like, and this is the part that I, I really want to, you know, I was talking about earlier that I, some of you have really been hurt. And this is kind of the part that I'm most sensitive towards that in. That I'm not just like, I have eight points here I'm going to go over. But I'm not just saying, hey, if you do these eight points really easy today, this afternoon, you're going to be, all your relationships will be destroyed, be restored. Not destroyed. <laughs> but restored. And so I, um... It's not that easy, is it? It's going to take a long time. But I do want you to have these, these components. I do want you to have these, these practical insights. I want you to have this structure as you're approaching it. So the first one is simply just do not deny the pain. God really can comfort you. Um, you know, essentially, like, I mean, these hurts really hurt. <laughs> That's a great sentence, isn't it? These hurts really hurt. But... You know, people's defrauding of us, their lack of love and lack of faithfulness really hurts us. And we really need to, um, we just need to say it hurts. Now, do we need to walk around every day being like, oh, I've been hurt, and carry our picket sign, you know? No, I mean, when we put deodorant on to cover up our body odor, so we might want to put on a smile occasionally, you know? But you need to be talking to somebody. You need to be acknowledging it to somebody or yourself. So um, so don't deny the pain. You can be comforted and God can comfort you. Second is a willingness to forgive. We've kind of already talked about this. Um, we looked at Colossians 3, 12-13, but the key part of the verse there is forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then Matthew 6, 14-15 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are hard verses to hear. I remember hearing these as a younger man and thinking, whoo. Like it almost made me kind of feel like I didn't have room to wiggle with like being mad at somebody. Because <laughs> I was like, oh man, if I don't forgive right, right away, God's not going to forgive me, you know. So I can't be mad. I just need to quickly forgive. And But I never dealt with the problems, you know. And that's not really what it's saying here. This is a perspective that God has. And I'm going to do my best to kind of give you a picture of this. And bear with me, I made this up last service, and it might be terrible. And if you take it to its full, like, if you really look at this and kind of take it to its full length, it's probably a little heretical. 
It's heresy. It's un, it's false, you know. But I think it's helpful. This is the way I think God sometimes views us. Is let's say we've all gotten out of pool and we're all wet, and that wetness, the water on us, kind of represents wrongdoing and sin and hurting of one another. And God's looking at us all, and He's like, "Okay, I'll get the hair dryer on. I'm just going to dry it. You know, if you, if you want, I can dry you. But if you want to stay wet, you can stay wet too. You know. Um, but when we've been dried by him, we sometimes sit around and be like, they're wet, and they're wet, and they're wet, and they're terrible because they're wet. How could they get wet? (laughs) When really, we've been wet. Does that make sense? All right. (laughs) Maybe it doesn't. But anyways, God's perspective is forgive because I have forgiven you. And that's, we have to wrestle with that, right? And that's kind of what I want you to do. I'm not going to solve. I'm not going to completely answer that question for you. I'm not going to completely give you like, hey, here's the, I've solved this, the tension of this forgive because God forgave you in your mind forever at this message. I want you to wrestle with God on that. Because in that wrestling, you can find freedom. Um, we've already talked about this, but number three is seek to clear up relationships. I'm highlighting this again because I want you to know that, yeah, it sounds easy to seek to clear up relationships if you've been the defrauder, if you've hurt somebody, but it's really okay to seek to clear up relationships if you've been hurt by somebody. You know, I mean, if you can't let something go and somebody's hurt you, then you just need to go to them and say, look, you've hurt me and I can't get over it, so what next? And that's a hard conversation to have, isn't it? It may not end well. But it's our responsibility. And so you may need help. So talk to people who you think can help you with that. Um, next is seek peace at all times. Ephesians four thirty one through 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, which is basically hatred. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Romans twelve eighteen through 21 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, and that's a key part of this verse, as far as it depends upon you, um, be at peace with all men. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry... Give him some, or feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the little part about heaping burning coals by, you know, giving water to those who are thirsty, your enemies, and giving food to those who are hungry, your enemies. Like, if you don't know what that means, I encourage you to do a little Bible study on that and figure that out. Because that's a pretty interesting thing. I just want to highlight that. Similar to seek peace is also don't take revenge, number five. First Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray, and pray for those who persecute you. It's difficult. There's a tension there, isn't it? Do you guys feel it? I mean, let's pause for a moment. Do you feel the tension that Scripture is putting on us? 
I have to pray for those who persecute me? Those who defraud me? You want me to be willing to forgive someone who's hurt me deeply for years? There's a real tension there. And what do you have to lose? I mean, you have a lot to lose, don't you? When you forgive, you risk being hurt. So there's this tension. And it's there. I just want to be honest about it. I don't want to say, well, forgive them. And then you're like, this is hard stuff. And we need God's help with this. So wrestle with that. Number six is to bear with one another. Colossians 3, 12 through 15 says, Put on then, we've kind of already read this, you know, God's chosen people, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And it goes on, and it says basically, and be, and at the very end of this verse, you know, it talks about how God will be faithful. And it says, and be thankful. And I like how that's added there, because it's saying, this is good. It may seem hard. It may go against every grain in your body, but this is good. Be thankful for it. Um, Number seven is trust God, not man. Now, let's pick this apart for a minute here, and this is kind of what I want to say. You know, I talked earlier about how trust is different than forgiveness. So forgiveness is essentially this. It's not making people pay for the wrong they've done. You know, forgiving them is pretty much saying, I'm no longer going to make you pay. But it doesn't mean you're going to trust them. You know, the Proverbs 25, 19 says this. It says, trusting in a treacherous man, which in NIV is an untrustworthy man. So trusting in an untrustworthy or treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. You know, if you've got a bad tooth and you go to bite into your good old steak, you know, like it's going to hurt and it's not going to work. You know, if you're carrying a heavy load... And you depend upon that foot that slips, boy, the whole thing's going to collapse. So the Bible's saying, like, look, these people are, it's hard to trust in these people at times in trouble, so be careful. So what do we do then? You know, we're supposed to forgive, not make people pay, we're supposed to trust God, but what do we do with these people who hurt us? You know? So here, here's, here's the way I see it. And there's, it's more complex than this, but here's the way I see it. Is we, we put up boundaries with people who who are untrustworthy, who have proven, not just someone who hurts us once or twice or, you know, but who have proven to be untrustworthy. We forgive them and then we put up boundaries to protect against their untrustworthiness, their treacherousness. But here's what those boundaries are for. And this is really important and I want you to hear this. Those boundaries are not to punish them. It's hard to differentiate, isn't it? Between a boundary that punishes and a boundary that protects. Do you guys see the different difference there? It's hard to differentiate between a boundary that punishes and a boundary that protects. But what we don't do is we don't put up permanent walls that seal us in and cut that person out forever. We just don't do that. You know, if you really look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't really tell us to trust each other. It tells us to trust God in working with each other. But it doesn't say, depend upon man. It pretty much says that man will let you down. Does that mean, though, that we put up permanent walls and we live in our little castle? No. You know, I'm sure you guys have seen, like, all the little memes and Instagram posts that say, like, trust no man, fear no man, or, you know, whatever. And it's this idea 
And this isn't what I'm talking about here. That's the idea of like isolation and I am no longer going to give trust. That's an idea of saying people have hurt me too much that I'm now making everybody pay and they no longer have access to me. What we need to do is we need to have these boundaries in place that don't punish, but that that are trusting. And we need to check if trust has been restored every once in a while. So it's kind of like you have your boundary, the wall's not too high, and you kind of look over the wall, you open up the little gate and step out and see, have this person grown a little bit? If they have, then you kind of shorten the boundary up a little bit. Make it a little bit less and smaller. Give some trust. See what they do with that. Give some trust. See what they do. And eventually, maybe the boundaries can be completely removed. You know, and then at points, they might have to be built back up again. But we bear with. That's the whole crux of that word, bearing with. Bearing with. The bearing with is essentially that process that I just described. I'm not going to make them pay. I'm going to trust God as I work with this person. But I'm also going to still have some boundaries in place here. Does that make sense? That's, that's still not even a good enough explanation, is it? For what some of you have gone through. And you know, one... Uh, well, let's go on with the next part here. The last one is pray. And this is the most important part of this whole process. Is praying and asking God for help. You will, I guarantee you, if this way that God is presenting for us to approach restoring relationships, especially if you've been defrauded, well, and if you've defrauded, and I'll explain why in a second, if you've been in this position, you are going to need, for this process to work, you're going to need supernatural help from God. This isn't a self-help book. The Bible is not just a self-help book that gives you eight principles, and if you do these principles, then magically everything works out. Like, things can go really wrong. God has to intervene. God has to take care of you. Because you cannot control people. I can't control people. I can't even control myself. And that's the problem, isn't it? So I need God's supernatural help for me to become a person who's committed to love and faithfulness. I really need that. I've been praying this week, like, God, I need to restore my commitment to those things. I've let those things slack. I need your help. But I'm scared that I just... I'm not that committed. So will you help me, God? Will you help me wrestle with that? Will you help me become a person committed to that? And then I also need help to, to know how to set up the right boundaries to people and to know how to forgive people because I struggle with that. So the Bible, this is the pray part, and this is the verse that goes with it. It says, come to me. This is Jesus talking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. We labor, don't we? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can trust God. Restoration is really difficult, but it's worth it. You know, I want to go ahead and invite the band to come up on stage. But, wait, I want to end with this verse, though, if you don't mind backing up the slide a little bit. Or my screen. Um, I want you to really take seriously the scriptures that we talked about today and these concepts and really wrestle with them. But I also want you to really look at the, the whole series and really take it to action. 
I really believe that God can bless your life if you take it to action. And I want to end with this verse. It's John 16:33, and it says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I, Jesus, have overcome the world. Jesus knows how to approach relationships. And his ways are helpful. And so I pray that you'll, you'll see that. The reality is, guys, here's the reality. It takes far more strength than Bourne shows and has to really restore relationships God's way. There's some next steps in there that I want to bring your attention to before we wrap up. The first one is identify just where to start in my life in relationships. Like, where do I start? I mean, we could be talking about all this stuff, and it sounds great, and you're like, yeah, I want that, I want that, I want that, I need this, I need that. But where do I start? So ask God, or really think through and maybe talk with somebody if you need help, and really try to identify where do I start in my own life in restoring relationships. And next is just pray and ask God to give me the courage to move forward. And then I left the last one blank, but here's a couple ideas for you. Is um, Forgive someone when bitterness has settled in. Or seek God's help to become a person committed to love and faithfulness in your relationships. Pray with me, please. Lord, I just thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for your word and how sufficient it is for real life, Lord. I thank you for how helpful it is, Lord. I just pray, Lord, and I ask, we as a people ask for your help, God. Um, hurt in relationships, it, it just messes up things, Lord. We're just constantly messing up things, Lord. And we need your help, Lord. We need your help to become people committed to love and faithfulness. Help us with that, Lord, individually, and you're capable of that. And we also need your help, Lord, to, to know how to restore when we've been hurt, Lord, to know how to give forgiveness, to know how to seek peace, to know how to not take revenge, God. It's so hard not to do that. It's so hard not to make people pay. It's so hard not to build walls that permanently lock people out forever and we don't bear with each other, God. So I just pray, Lord, that we as individuals, Lord, that you would help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.